You're listening to the Sound Girls Podcast with Katie and Becky. Today's episode features an interview with Sherry Klein. Sherry Klein is a post-production re-recording mixer for television and film. She's currently living in Los Angeles, California, working with Smart Post Sound. Some of her credits include New Amsterdam, Queen of the South, Burn Notice, Sons of Anarchy, and The Shield. Sherry started her career as a musician. Her dream was always to study music and have a successful career in the music industry. Her early years were spent on the other side of the glass as a musician, but the realization of how recording could manipulate sound slowly took over her passions, and she soon began exploring her fascination for all things audio. She left the East Coast for Los Angeles and spent seven years with Larrabee Studios as a recording engineer until 1983 when she moved into the field of post-production mixing. Throughout her career, she has worked with an array of outstanding talent in both music, television, and film. Her passions for music and sound have only grown throughout the years, and she enjoys mentoring and giving back to the industry whenever possible. Oh, there's Becky. Am I here? Can you hear me? Yes. (laughs) We can hear you. Yay! Why can't you see me? Or can you see me? No, we cannot. I can see you. Oh, you can see her? I can see you. I can see her. Oh, she's only a waveform for me. Really? (laughs) Turned into a waveform girl, <laughs> a literal sound girl. <laughs> I have always wanted to be a waveform. <laughs> Wouldn't things be so much freaking easier? <laughs> no shit, right? I'd never have to do my hair. It'd be great. Okay, this is obviously like a big question because it requires big walk down memory lane. But let's okay. just start with your roots. Like, how did you get into this whole audio thing? How did your interests develop, and how did you find your way? I can remember that. Oh, good. (laughs) Short story, right? (laughs) Yeah. So my background was music. As a kid growing up, I played in bands, always on the other side of the glass. Anytime I was in the studio, uh, I majored in music at both Webster College. It was Webster College, now Webster University. This is how old I am. All the schools I went to are now universities and they were colleges at the time. So I went to Webster College and I studied classical composition about six months of Gregorian chant at 9 a.m. showed me that wasn't for me (laughs) and heard about a place called Berkeley College of Music, again, college, now University of Music in Boston. So I applied there as an arranging composition major and I went there. And that was where I was for a couple of years. Moving to Boston was awesome. It was great. I had some great times. I loved going to school there. At the time when I went, there were 50 girls to about 800 guys You could have been a dog. It didn't matter, you know, but you were so hung up and so busy writing charts. You didn't have time for anything else. I studied for a couple of years. And then one day we had to record a piece that we were doing down in the studio in the basement that I didn't even know they had. I mean, it was so (laughs) far down in the dregs of the basement that it took me a while to find it. It was the equivalent of about two large closets. And the guy who was running it was Joe Hostetter, who eventually became one of the instrumental people in creating what they have now, which is the whole Berkeley stage and, you know, studios and everything like that. But he took my piece and he recorded it. And I was in the control room. There are a lot of big dials and big, big buttons and things in literally the size of a closet. I think my closet at home is about the size of his control room. And the studio wasn't much bigger. But... Hearing my piece of music recorded and the way that he manipulated the sound, just adding reverbs and things like that, it just kind of blew me away and it really piqued Mm. my interest. And I always say in everything that I do, that was my aha moment. It was the first moment that I went, (laughs) ah, this is kind of cool shit. You know, I like this. Joe said, you know, feel free to come down and hang out anytime you want, which I did. I started doing. But One of the things that happened to me while I was at Berkeley was I became very technically oriented compositionally. I was getting A's and B's on my papers on the compositions I was doing, but I didn't feel like I was creating anything new or creating anything different. Everything was a sub five of a two five of a this of a that. I could analyze anything, you know, given tonic in the middle of a subway and just write it from there. And I was handing in papers and I was really feeling like uh, my creative juices were gone. At that point, I went there as a guitar major, but I ended up a piano major because I was arranging composition and felt it would serve me better. Mm -hmm. 
but I'd go into the piano practice rooms and I would block out. I just, and I'm listening to things that everybody else is doing. And I'm saying to myself, I don't know, maybe you just don't have it anymore. I, I just, it was like my entire life's dream was to be a musician and it sort of dried up. And I started getting more fascinated with audio and I was sitting in a harmony class and I whispered to a friend next to mine. I said, if I get an A or a B on this, I'm quitting. And he said, why? And I said, because it's a piece of crap. I said, it is, yeah, it follows the rules. It's the right assignment, you know, response. I said, but it really is a piece of shit as far as a composition goes. <laughs> and so I got it back and I got a B plus on it. And I said, I'm, I'm out of here. So I decided, so I quit. I quit wow. after almost three years, I quit. And, and it was a freak out for me to quit because you have to realize since I was a kid, all I wanted to do was study music. It's all mm. I did when I was a kid, when I was in high school. I mean, I remember a time when my teacher in high school, I was in a sociology class and he came by me and he saw my paper and I had little doodles and he put a treble clef on it and looked at me and went, and I went, got it. Uh, he knew where my mind was. <laughs> I wasn't, I wasn't thinking sociology or history or whatever it was. So after that, I remember calling my folks and I was in tears because I was so freaked out. What am I going to do with my life? What am I going to do? You know, this is all I've ever known and decided to further my knowledge in audio. But at the same time I was studying, this is a very strange twist, um, classical composition, fugue counterpoint with a guy named Hugo Norden, because I wanted to continue studying music, but I wanted it my way on my terms. And I also went to a place called Boston School of Electronic Music, which furthered my audio fascination. We were dealing with like Moog 12s and ARP 2600s. That was just starting, nice. starting to come into play. So I got to play with a lot of really cool stuff. Found a place in Cambridge called Orson Welles Film School, which had an 8-track studio down below. So I enrolled. And at the same time, I found a job at a recording studio. Now, a caveat to this, or an addendum to this. Before I quit Berkeley, two of my professors pulled me aside and said, you know, we really don't like hearing this. Your grades are good. You have a lot of talent, blah, 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 blah. And I explained to them why. And they said, well, maybe you just need a rest. You know, that's why it's kept taking music classes as well outside. And one of my teachers actually turned me on to this guy, Hugo Norton. So they asked me the craziest question in the world, which was, do you know how to type? And I said, no. And they said, well, don't ever learn to type. You have too much talent to be stuck in the back room of a recording studio. And that's what's going to happen at this point if you want to further yourself in this field in audio. Because that was in the 70s. It's a long time ago. Things were different. And so I said, okay, to this day, I still don't know how to type. I mean, I do everything. I'm too fat. I'm too finger. You know, I'm, I'm fast. I'm, I don't know what I'm doing typing wise. But anyway, when I got the job in the studio, it was to be the assistant for the guy who owned the place. And I told him immediately, I can't type. He said, I don't need you to type. I'm going to teach you how to cut tape, cut audio tape. We do a lot of children's albums. I need you to move barks and things around and voices and stuff. And I went, okay, cool. I said, I really want to be an assistant engineer. And he said, uh, I'm sorry, women are not permitted in the studio. You know, that's not the place for, for women. And I went, wow. okay. But luckily, the engineer upstairs was a really wonderful guy who knew my passions. And we talked a lot. And he started kind of training me at night when Joe would go home, when the owner would go home. And I was still taking classes at the film school at Orson Welles. So Everybody in the class wanted to be, just wanted their demos recorded. I was the only one that really wanted to know engineering. So I got to do everybody's demos. And so I got a lot of experience. And the two guys who ran that was, was Wayne Wadhams and Bill Gitt, who eventually joined with Joe Hostetter at Berkeley and created the Berkeley everything. So my three mentors in my early stages were the three guys who created that entire department. And That's so I was so very, cool. very lucky. I was very, very lucky. Um, cutting to the chase from there, this guy once threatened to call in sick and throw me in, into the fire. And he sort of did one day. And I was successful in getting through it with everything he taught me and everything I learned. But then one night I was staying to help some guys that came over to do some wiring in the studio. 
and we were sitting around at about 2 a.m. getting high and they were just like, you know, we were all talking and dreaming. I told them everything I was doing and everything I wanted to do in my career and where I wanted to go and where I came from and what my background was. And they said, well, we're, we're building a 16-track studio. And that was big, 16-track. That was big then. And I went, oh, wow, that's cool. And they said, do you want to join us? And I'm like, yeah. It, it took me two seconds. And so I joined them. And we built this studio from the ground up. We built a drum booth that sank in the first six months. We <laughs> built a studio that sank in the first eight months. I had so much experience in this place because they taught me to think out of the box because we had to, because a couple of our backers fell out pretty early and we didn't have enough to get a console. So we had this crazy console that John, one of the owners, built for his home studio, which had these rotary pots for faders and things. We had, we did great things, which I've talked about before, like, you know, underneath the console was a Hammond spring unit, which we'd use, we'd put fiberglass pieces on to cut to K times. Uh, if I needed a digital delay, we had a mic set in the basement bouncing off of walls and bi-directional. We did crazy things in, That's because so we didn't have the money to, to get the real stuff. Oh, it's insane. But, you know, you want, we had different markings downstairs in the basement as to what kind of a delay time we'd have with the Neumann, you know, it was a bi-directional mic. I think it was a Neumann until we needed it upstairs. And we'd position it off walls and things in, in various positions and then take the feet upstairs. The Hammond Springs, as long as you didn't kick it, you were okay. Because when you kicked it, uh, it was like crazy. It was like, ah, holy, I'm sorry, everybody. <laughs> Um, but it had to be on the con under the console because we needed to change the decay times, you know. So we were able to reach down and do that. So, you know, even though I never had a technical background in many respects, I was very technically oriented, even though I didn't know it. Even in my music days, I would think formulas in order to remember music theory and electronic music got into that. It was like a massive video game to me. I loved it. It was, you know. <laughs> It was wonderful. So that's kind of how I got into audio. It was an extremely backhanded way. It wasn't what was expected and it wasn't what I was supposed to do. But you learned all the physics of it. Like you taught yourself the physics of audio. Like well, these guys, these guys, Don Miller and Don Richardson, they freely taught me everything. They gave me so much knowledge and they were big supporters of mine. I mean, there were times when, when we would go to groups of engineers in town, a few engineers, there were like two or three studios in town. We'd go over there and, you know, people didn't regard me. They'd push me aside and I was used to it. I didn't give a shit. I have a hard head, but I knew it was going to happen, you know, but I would say something and all of a sudden Don would look at me and ask me, to expand on what I was saying. And then I would be talking tech and I would be talking their language. And all of a sudden they realized, and he'd go, yeah, this is Sherry. Like I said, she's one of our mixers at the studio. And then mm -hmm. I became part of the group. It just took a little bit of time to find the right end, you know, and I knew that the opportunity would present itself right. and I would no longer be regarded as somebody's girlfriend or the chick at the front desk. You know, it was one of those things where I had to wait for my, you just kind of wait for your moment and then you go and then boom. And from that point on, it was very cool. So luckily I was accepted and they brought me into their fold and I learned a tremendous amount. And in 1976, I decided to move out to LA. It was just like, I'm going to move to Los Angeles because I had, because before we built the studio, Don, John and I took the, what we call the hippie bus, the yellow bus from New York all the way out to LA to explore studios and San Francisco and meet up and see what we were going to buy, you know, for our studio. So we went to the record plant, went to Alembic, the Grateful Dead studio. We went all over Wally Hyders and we looked at things. And that was when we still thought we had all three backers and all the money. So it wasn't until afterwards that we found out that we lost that and we could basically build the place and had to figure out the rest. So we were, you know, we were on a fact finding tour. So at that point, I was like, I want to move out here. This is where it is. <laughs> now, I'm from the New York, New Jersey area. You know, everybody assumed I'd moved to New York and launch my career there. But I figured, yeah, New York, been there, done that. I want to move out to the West Coast. I'm done with snow. I'm over at, lived in Boston right. for a number of years. Don't need it anymore. <laughs> So I moved out to L.A. in 76, and uh, I knew one person, 
didn't really have any connections and decided to just start going studio to studio with my resume, knowing that I was looking for an assistant engineer's position because I wouldn't walk into an engineer's slot. And I, you know, the person that I was living with at the time, he basically mapped out each studio and how to get there for me from, I was living in Hermosa Beach at the time when I first moved out here. And I would go, you know, to Cherokee, to Larrabee, to Hyders, to Record Play. You know, I would just go. He told me where to go because he was in the industry. And strangely enough, I did get some callbacks because there really weren't any women in the industry, you know. Record Plant did have Terry Becker, so they had one. I think Hyders had another. Capital, I think, had Leslie. Larrabee and Cherokee contacted me, and it just so happened that Larrabee, they called me back right away, and it was between Larrabee and Cherokee at one point. But Larrabee, I went to go visit, and I enjoyed them. And then something kind of outrageous happened. A client of mine from the East Coast got a deal and they called me and they said, Hey, we have a couple of thousand dollars and we need to record a demo for our deal for capital. And, uh, we want to do three songs, any place out there that you can find to do it by the heck of it called up Jackie Mills at Larrabee. And I said, so like, I have this project. I have, I think it was $3,000 or something. Could I do it at Larrabee? Now Larrabee was doing you know, Fleetwood Mac, they were doing um, Hall and Oates, they were doing big acts, you know, Donna Summer, everything, Um, all kinds of stuff. And he said, yes, let's see what you can do. I said, okay. And so they put me into Studio B and they, Tavi Mote, who's now passed, who was wonderful engineer, he uh, assisted me and helped me set up and they threw me on a console I had never seen, but I just did it. And after the first day or two, he walked out and said, she's ready. She's fine. And so Jackie took me outside in the parking lot and he had a bunch of things with him. And he hands me a T-shirt, a hat, a set of keys. (laughs) And he goes, if a chick's going to make it in this business in this town, she better be from New York and have balls. You qualify. You're hired. (laughs) He was the most amazing. He was wonderful. I adored Jackie and Dolores Mills, who ran and owned Larrabee Studios at the time. And they were fantastic with me. They let me engineer a lot of the publishing demos. I did the assisting. I worked with phenomenal people. And because I had a skill that nobody else had, I kind of moved up a little fast. I could read scores. Mm-hmm. So back in those days when we were doing orchestral things and a producer would say, I want to be able to punch in here, this run and this run and this run. And Jackie grabbed me and threw me into the session and said, she can read scores. And they went, really? I'm like, yeah, circle what you want. And we were dealing with studers, which were big buttons, you know, really big buttons. And so I'd be boom, 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 boom. I'd be going in (laughs) and out because I could read the scores. So that was kind of cool. And it also brought me to a lot of really incredible people that I got to work with because I had that capability. And they also knew that I could take over. I did a lot of takeover engineering for people. And then eventually I left Larrabee and went over to ABC Studios because they had promised me more of an engineering slot. But Larrabee bought me back after a couple of months (laughs) and I ended up getting more engineering slots because literally somebody had to die before you could get an engineering slot in those days. And nobody was dying at the time. So, you know, (laughs) they basically kind of slotted me in and I still assisted, but I did more engineering. And then I had a couple of clients there, the infamous Kim Fowley, who looked at me and said, Hey, I got a girl group. I want to do it for Electra. You ready? And I went, "Uh uh-huh. And he went, okay. And so he gave me my first group that I fully engineered because I worked on the runaways. I worked on a lot of albums, but not as the main engineer. The first engineering credit I actually got was with Jack Nitsche, who was doing Michelle Phillips and the engineer that was mixing. It had to go up to Northern California to start another project we were running over. And so he said, well, let Sherry do the overdubs and I'll come back down at the end and we'll just mix it. And at the end of it, Jack brought me a copy of the album and it said, girl engineer, boy engineer, which I thought was so cute because it was my first engineering (laughs) credit. 
So there were a lot of wow. crazy instances like that. I mean, uh, Larry used to call me Shay when they'd be booking me sometimes because it was very nondescript, right. <laughs> gender-wise. Right. Yeah. And then I'd walk in and, you know, that was their way of saying, she's capable, she can do it. You know, I'm giving her the edge right now. Um, there was a situation when I was working on the Cal Jam tapes because I was working at the time Bruce Botnick was engineering and producing and I was basically his person. And he put me with Andy Johns to do this. And this is a, this is always a fun story because uh, Jackie knew that Andy was not going to be happy with a woman. Very British, very on the up and up, you know, doesn't <laughs> like to curse in front of women. You know, the, it was it was just very strange dichotomy of a person. But I was like, oh, yeah, I want to work with him. Yes. So Jackie called me up the night before and he said, okay, get every four letter word and shitty phrase that you can think of in your <laughs> arsenal, in your head. And he said, if I look at you, he said, just spout them out. And so I said, okay, so come in tomorrow at 11 and he's coming in. I'll be in the office. I said, okay. So I came in, I was in the office and Andy was sitting there and he walks in and he goes, this is Shay, this is Sherry. <laughs> uh, and he goes, he said a bird, but he's like, you know, basically a chick. He gave me a chick because we're going to live in the studio for seven days, day and night, sleeping on and off on the couch and eating our food and maybe going home to wash up once in a while. It was a nonstop gig. And he just started pacing the floor and like, you know, going like, what did you do? You know, and Jackie looked at me and he kind of went, nodded his head. And I just sat there and very calmly went, fuck shit, piss, baby, 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 and, you know, and phrases, and I had them all. And Andy stopped and looked at me and went, jolly good. And <laughs> Jackie just went, you ready? And he goes, yeah, JJ is over there. And that's how, how we did it. And we, it was great. I mean, at the end of it, he was doing some overdubs with the Stones at United Western and invited me over, which was really cool. And he was just, he, he ended up being great. You know, it was just that initial. And a lot of times that's what I found. It was just that initial. And then I could win them over that way. Yeah. And then I freelanced and did album work and all that stuff. So I was, I mean, I've had three careers in the industry, a musician, engineer, and then post. So. It sounds like each one of your jobs that you have had plays off the other one. You know, it just yeah. like... Like you didn't realize you probably needed to know scores and it actually helped you out later on in life, you know? So exactly. that's pretty cool. I mean, <laughs> which is why when I talk to people so many times, what I say to them is I didn't see the forest for the trees. I didn't plan on becoming a post-production re-recording mixer. Hell no. That was not in my wheelhouse at all. In fact, I didn't even know it existed back then. Um, <laughs> You know, and I probably had I known what I know today, I might have become a music editor, but that right. wasn't in my wheelhouse either. I didn't even know those existed. And how I got into post-production is another left turn out of nowhere, which was back in uh, 1983, the bottom was falling out of the record industry, as I see it. Mm -hmm. That's when Napster started coming into play. A lot of record companies started going under. I had a whole bunch of contracts that that owed me money that you know went under and I had to wait until their chapter 11 went through and everything to get any funds at all on the dollar and it was a really rough time even the major engineers were not coming into a lot of work it was it was a tough time for everybody yeah and out of the blue an engineer that I worked with on a couple of albums calls me up and goes hey like I'm working at this tv station KTTV in Los Angeles and I'm doing this TV show called Three's Company and a few other things. And I'm going on vacation for the summer and I need somebody to take over for me. And I figure, you know, all the gear. I just got to teach you about the synchronizer and the time code. And the first thing I said to him was time code. That's that horrible thing when you lift up Fader 24, right? <laughs> and he goes, yeah, but it does a little more than that. And I said, I, yeah, I know. And he said, I got to teach you, you know, with picture and stuff. So I said, okay. I said, this sounds interesting, different, but interesting. And so yep. I went over for the day and he said, you know, you know, the console, you know, the multi-track machines. This is our synchronizer. It was a CMX synchronizer, which was a paper tape synchronizer, the kind where the paper tape goes through and has all these nodules to go into. And he said, you just have to be careful because sometimes it'll get stupid and it'll just fly all over the room. 
And then you got to kind of piece it back together and put it back in its slot. And I went, okay. Because it doesn't happen too often. Of course, it happened to me the first day um, <laughs> okay, that I course, took over. Of course. <laughs> and I'm like, ah, it was like spaghetti. It was like, you know, one of those everywhere. But I pieced it together and put it back in. But anyway, he showed me how all that worked and how picture worked with it and everything. And I took over for him for the summer. And at the end of it, he decided, well, he was taking another job elsewhere. So he wasn't coming back. So they asked me to stay on. And I reluctantly said yes, because I was still getting some album work. So basically, whenever I would get an album, I would, you know, make sure I could accommodate that. And I went back and forth for a couple of years. And then I got a job doing another kind of magazine show format at another place, uh, Canyon Recorders, with this crazy Ed Lever guy who was wonderful. But I got to work at a number of different studios. And post-production in this area was just audio sweetening and just kind of coming into things if you weren't on a major lot. And still doing scoring, still doing records when they came along, because post was boring. It was just going into stereo, just going into one-inch videotape. Music was far <laughs> more you know, cool and challenging. So I did that and I did another gig. I took some freelance gigs. A couple of people turned me on to some other shows, you know, that I could pick up at night. And then I'd do records during the day and just kind of went on that like that for a little while until another maybe two years later or something where I got a job at a place called EFX Systems in Burbank. And that was a recording studio going into post-production. So they were sort of both. And the owner was a guy with a lot of foresight and a lot of, you know, he was the first person in town to have full synclaviers and, you know, post-pros. And that's way back in the digi-design days. Like, you guys may not even remember <laughs> what the synclavier was or what the post-pro were, but they were the first Okay. of what became Avid <laughs> and everything else, okay? Right, right, like, right. you know. <laughs> yeah. So little by little, I mean, look, when I started post-production, I knew that there were dubbing stages at Sony and at Warner Brothers. I did a scoring date where I went to Lionsgate to mix, or they were mixing it there, and I saw three people on a console, and I went, interesting. It fascinated me and I thought it was kind of cool. It was just stereo and okay, it was stereo. That was kind of cool. But I was still back and forth between the music and the re-recording. It was at EFX that I really kind of grew up a little bit with post-production. I was doing everything in dialogue, music and effects for the most part for the first couple of years. Did a lot of animation, but the big show that kind of launched me was a show called 30 something. And I mixed that the I last two years. That show. I mixed that the last two years, not the first year, the last two years. And that kind of launched my career as a dialogue mixer. That's kind of when we started going into specialization a few years into it. I mean, I was I was at EFX for I think nine years or so. And it was a major process getting from the sweetening, you know, the three doing all three things to the area of specialization where I was doing dialogue. Somebody else was mixing music and somebody else effects. It wasn't until much later when I was at Sony years later when we went into two-person crews. But in the beginning, it was three-person crews. And 30-something helped me when EFX kind of was going into Chapter 11 and they were changing over. I decided it was time for me. In fact, I was in Greece when I got an email from somebody telling me that they were going to go Chapter 11. And, uh, you know, everybody's out looking for work. And I'm like, oh, damn, I'm going to be late to the game. But when I came back, I started going forth and, and looking, and, um, and it was also at a time where there were no women doing it, you know, not really as lead mixers or effects mixers or anything like that. There were only, I don't think there was any, anybody on a major lot, and I had a couple of bites. I had a bite from Universal, but they wanted me basically to be doing audio sweetening again, you know, single man crew. And I and I wanted to do the, the full thing. So I waited and got told from another facility, as soon as we have first opening, you got the slot. But then Sony called and said, we need somebody right away. We need somebody who can start this fall. And I went, oh, OK, I, I can do that. And I said, but I still have two shows going at my other place. So he said, well, we desperately need you for one show because a particular mixer is retiring. And he said he'd do the first couple. 
And I said, well, that works great because I can do two days with you two, and then three days or four days finishing up the other shows. And that'll take us to January and then we can negotiate my contract and decide if you really want me or not. So we did that. And I was going over the hill and down the hill and over the hill and down the hill. And in January, they basically said, we want you full time. And so I, you know, I became the first gaffing dialogue mixer at, as far as I know, at a lot in LA. And that was 1991. Yeah, my, I think it was 1991. And I turned to Barry Snyder, who hired me, who was a sweetheart. And I said to him, I said, are the guys going to be cool with me as their lead? And he just looked at me and said, fuck them. You're the only person that has the qualifications that I need to fill the chair. If they don't like it, I'll fire them. And I just went, okay. <laughs> and eventually he That's did fire boss. one person. It wasn't even due to something I said. The clients actually went to him and said, he's treating her like crap. He's not listening to her. He's, he's, and he came to me and said, why didn't you say this to me. Why don't you tell me? I said, this is my first year. I don't want to make waves. I've got a hard head. I can handle anything. He goes, but the clients are coming for you. They're not coming for him. Mm. And you're the gaffing mixer. It's your stage. And he goes, so I fired him. I said, it's two weeks before Christmas. He goes, I don't care. <laughs> fired him. I mean, wow. So good that he had your back. Like, wow. He really did. He was, he was great. He was great. And I was at Sony for 10 years. Did I read first and only woman at Sony? Is that correct? At the time. On the dubbing stage? At yeah. the time. Yeah. At the time, yes. Because eventually they hired Debbie Dare. Mm. And I think that was it. Um, no, then, then they've got, I think they've got a few others now. But yeah, I was the first. And I was the first for a long time. <laughs> a long time. That's for so a awesome. long time. And I had a great crew. I had the best, great, wonderful crew. We're all still best friends. Sort of like you never forget your first. Yeah. Bestest <laughs> friends. I was just thinking back to like when we interviewed uh, Leslie Ann Jones and she was saying one of the things that she wished people in this generation would understand that obviously you got was that we're in a customer service industry. Like if the client's not happy, you know, then you don't have a job, obviously, is the lesson for that guy who worked with yeah, you. Exactly. <laughs> While you were saying that, it was reminding me of that, you know, just kind of like, wow, that's that's why we do this, right? It's for our clients. So yeah, Leslie and I, I mean, we talked when we saw each other recently and we talked about the old times versus the new and the difference in certain attitudes and the way things are coming up and the way things are, you know, are happening these days. And it was a, we're very much of the same ilk and the same mind, maybe because we go back so far together and, you know, have been able to sustain our careers for so long um, and keep working and still enjoy it and still love it. And we have a lot of the same basic principles in the way that we deal with things. Well, you're doing something right because your longevity in the industry has not only been awesome to to see and hear about, but like just inspiring, you know, for those of us who are still still cranking <laughs> it out out here too, just like yourself, you know, I'm just blown away how, what some of the things you had to go through for us to be here even, you know, oh, so thank you for that. I, you're very I welcome. I'm glad that I was able to pave the way on some of these things. I mean, another thing that happened, okay, I left Sony in 91, and the reason I left Sony was because the technology wasn't really keeping up at the time. And I had heard about this new thing, Pro Tools mixing. <laughs> this was my next big, okay, let's take another left turn away from everything that you know. Yeah. And so at the time, the union was giving out Pro Tools classes. It was what I called the wham, bam, thank you, ma'am. It was sort of like, you know, you go in Friday night and by Sunday afternoon, you walk out and you can run Pro Tools. And I'm like, my mind doesn't work like that. I don't think that's going to work. So I went looking for another place. There really weren't many classes at that point. And there was this wonderful guy, Chilitos Valenzuela, who is now the avid school, you know, uh, in Santa Monica. And Chilitos had a class that was three hours a night for two weeks. And it was very costly for me to plunk down the money. But 
I decided I was going to do it. I just decided because I was bored anyway. You know, I was like, you know, we had, okay, how old we are. At Sony, we had Game Boys. And if our effects mixer was doing a car chase, we had so much time on our hands. We could read books. I read a lot of books. And we played Game Boys, connected Game Boys. Okay. That's how much time we had. So, you know, I was kind of like, something's got to give. And it wasn't going to give there soon enough for me. So I took the class and luckily, because Chilitos was my contemporary, he just kind of looked at me and said, you're the only functioning, you're an actual mixer. And my studio is open to you anytime you have free time. He said, I need to learn more about post-production. So let's, you know, you just come in anytime you want and do the classes and I'll help you in any way that I can. And he really did open his world to me. I mean, we're still very close friends now as well. And I help him whenever I can. He taught me a lot about Pro Tools, enough so that I walked out of those classes and after the weeks afterwards and said, I want to work in Pro Tools. So I called up this studio. They were the only Pro Tools studio I knew of. And I called up the owner and left him a message. It was a cold call. And I went, hi, I don't know if you remember me, but I'm Sherry Klein. And uh, we sort of met a number of years back. Um, and yes, I did steal 30 something from you. And don't hold that against me. But I'm at Sony and I'm looking to move into a Pro Tools environment. And I understand you have a Pro Tools studio. He called me back five minutes later. He goes, of course I remember you. You stole 30 something. <laughs> there he goes, but I won't hold it against you. And I said, that's cool. He said, so you want to leave Sony? He goes, people never leave there. And I said, well, this one wants to. I said, you know, I want to get into this new area. I said, I've been studying it. I've been learning it. And I, I just kind of want to work in this, in this way. And so he said, let's have lunch. Anyway, he hired me that day. And so I left Sony and went to work there. And the first day, the first session I had, I remember, even though I had played around and I'd been in there and there were control 24s at the time, I sat in there and I looked at the screen and I looked at the control 24 and I put up my template. And the only thing that I could say was it felt like somebody put me in a spaceship and said, there's the moon. You've gone there a thousand times. You know how to get there. Just this time, I want you to turn around and face the back of the spaceship. Don't look at the moon. And then all your controls, everything you're used to in your life is on the ceiling now. Go. No big deal. <laughs> Literally, because my black boxes were not there. There were plugins. Everything was in. The, I wasn't patching to get anywhere. I was routing things and and doing things in Pro Tools. Right. And I had to trust that Pro Tools was going to keep everything in their automation, which I wasn't quite used to their automation. <laughs> and thank goodness I had a supervisor who had been working as an editor in Pro Tools forever and said, hey, um, you can do this faster if you do blah, blah, blah. And I went, oh, I know how to do that. Okay, now's the time to use it. Because I knew things, but I didn't know when to apply certain things. Right. And so that's what my next year was like. Mm. Okay. My next year was figuring it out. Now, the other thing is when I left Sony, I was trying to find an effects mixer to come with me. And all of them basically said, oh, come on, Sherry, we're going to be retired before that stuff takes over the industry. Within two years, they were calling <laughs> me. How do you work this stuff? You know, yeah. How does this work? <laughs> Yeah. And I eventually found somebody or I, there was somebody there that came in and was my wing guy for a while. Yeah, it was it was pretty interesting. It was a whole about face into a whole new realm. And I loved it. I loved it. Again, it was a big video game to me. It was like, oh, my God, I can pre-dub on my own. I can I can stop and start when I want. I can even edit. You know, I don't have to send anything back to editorial and music edit wise. Yeah. I could do all of that stuff because I understand all that stuff. And to this day, I still do a tremendous amount of music editorial on stage because I can. And my editors are busy doing other things. And sometimes yeah. I'll just send things back to them and go, I don't have time to make this pretty, but this is what they want. Because I may not be able to make it beautiful, but I know exactly what they want. 
And they'll be like, yeah, we love that. And I'll go, great. And it'll be better in a minute. And I send it back to my music editor and then they ship it back to me fully pretty. But that's how I moved into the Pro Tools realm. And then in 12, 13 years ago, SmartPost came after me. And so I've been with them ever since. And I, I did go back to Sony from the facility I was at. I went back to Sony to help them put in their Pro Tools rooms two years, ah. two or three years later. <laughs> and, and it was a disaster. It was a disaster, which reminded me exactly why I didn't want to go back there. And I left and went back to the other place and then went to smart post. So that, that's my career. <laughs> that's my story. That's, Thank that's, you so much for that's the reader's digest version of my story. It I love so that good. version. Yeah. Yes. Thank you. I, I just have like a big overarching question Go based on that series of events. Like why and how are you so brave <laughs> and like hard headed? Honestly, because like, the guts it takes to keep changing paths, to roll with the punches, to learn new things, to take so much shit from other people. I, um, like, uh, how? I, you know something? I it, It's funny. I was the son my father never had. So I would go to the baseball games with him and I would go to the track with him and I would go doing all that stuff with my dad. I, I was my dad's kid. My dad was a Bronx street kid. And my mom raised me... I have a lot of her qualities, but I have a lot of my dad's and that was a lot of fearless. Like he brought me up to touch fire and get burned if I have to, but learn from it. And I did that. And I put my parents through mm -hmm. hell as I was a teenager growing up because I hitchhiked cross country. <laughs> you know, I did all kinds of insane, crazy things and called them from, you know, like jails in Colorado. Hey, mom, I got busted, you know. <laughs> Hey, Dad, hey, what, you know, that money I had put aside for college, send me some of that, you know. And I mean, I really put them through hell. I, I, you know, I was at Woodstock. I went to Woodstock. Woodstock was a three-day event. I was there for five days because I helped stay and clean up. You know, I had convinced them to let me stay down at this house when I was 16 in Long Beach Island with them and told them I'm going to stay with friends because I was gigging in a coffee house and staying with older people. And we closed the coffee house and went up to Woodstock. And then I hopped the fence and, you know, <laughs> to the Garden State Parkway to my parents' house. And, and my sister found all my journals and they busted me, you know, I mean, oh my God. You know? <laughs> I love this story even more now. You I was at Woodstock? Woodstock. Oh my god! I was at Woodstock. I lost. I lost the people I came with after forty-five minutes and didn't see them again for years. You know? <laughs> I've been fortunate enough to mix a lot of the people that that played at Woodstock, just because I live in Florida now, and everyone has either is is close to retirement or has long since retired, and so I've gotten to mix a lot of. Uh, those people oh, and just the stories that come out of Woodstock boggle the mind. So, so. <laughs> happy that I got to be there. I, it was such a fluke even going there and stuff, but yeah, it was an amazing time. But, you know, I, I really put my, my folks through the ringer, but my dad always said, you know, you can do anything you want to do in life. Just try not to hurt anybody in the process. And I always remembered mm. that. You know, I always remember that that was advice. phenomenal advice. I mean, when I started dating, I remember my father said to me, he goes, okay, I'm just going to tell you this. It may not make a lot of sense, but don't ever take any, any more of somebody's freedom than you want taken from yourself. Whoa. I didn't know what the fuck he was talking about then. But as I got older, it was like, <laughs> daddy, you were right, man. You were really on top of it. He was very cool. It's one wise man. He was a wise man. He was yeah. an amazing. I was very lucky to have both my parents because they went through a lot with me and they had faith in me. And they said, whatever you do next, you're going to do the way you do everything, which is 100%, 150%, and you're going to do well. And even though they never quite understood what I did for a living, no matter how many times I explained it to them, <laughs> they liked seeing the credits. They liked falling asleep to my shows and then waking up during the credits and seeing them. And they were always very proud of that. To them, I pressed buttons in a big building with a number of people in there. You know, they, they didn't quite get it. 
my mom thinks I do lighting, so it's fine. <laughs> yeah, my grandmother was like, she tell her friends, yeah, she pushes buttons in a big building and she plays with these favorite things. I don't know. <laughs> I was just thinking about shows that you've mixed on that I've watched. And I'm like, as you're talking, I'm thinking, let's see if I can have any questions. And I'm like, just mixing dialogue on Sons of Anarchy had to have been yeah, ridiculous. that was uh, that was ridiculous. It was crazy. Well, I had come off six years of the Shield. <laughs> yeah, it was a bitch, you know. But I, I can but only it was imagine. it was educating. <laughs> I learned a lot. You know, I think every job that I do, I mean, the show that I'm on now, New Amsterdam, it's a very tough show. You wouldn't know it when you watch it. It looks like a walk and talk. Um, their locations are practical set. You know, they're not sets. They're hospital. It's a hospital in New York and Midtown Manhattan and rooftops in Manhattan and the Brooklyn Bridge. They did that to me recently. Um, <laughs> it, it's like, you know, uh, you know, <laughs> it's, it's not, you know, I've, I've had to really stretch myself on this show to get it to sound good, to get the dialogue out where there's no signal to noise. It's an education, you know, no matter how many years you mix, you keep learning things. And as long as you're open to learning things, you don't stop growing as a mixer. Nobody knows everything. Nobody knows the right way to do everything. There is no right way. There is no wrong way. It's like when I'm working on ADR and grafting between production and ADR, which I tend to do a lot, I always ask for every ADR alt, and I don't care if there's 40 of them. I tell them to put it down at the bottom of my session, and I just start dragging things up because I'm looking for inflection. You know, right. it, To me, it's all rhythm. Dialogue is rhythm. And if the rhythm's off, then it throws you out of the scene. It throws you out of the story. So, you know, they may select one for ADR, but I hear it and I go, no, the pitch is wrong or the, this is wrong. And I'll, you know, I'll work on it and I'll put the pieces together until I get what's in my mind's ear. And then somebody will say, Sherry, the sync isn't right. And I go, sync is easy. Sync is easy once you get the rhythm of everything and you throw it all in there together. Yeah. Uh, you mentor a lot, Sherry, yeah. or, or you try to, yeah. So how, how do folks, listeners go about getting your mentorship and uh, getting in contact with you? You know, um, asking for myself. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, what I've done a lot of times is there have been a couple of people who have contacted me through LinkedIn or like, I just did something. I did a, an honorarium for SCAD Savannah College of Arts and Design, and people reach out to me with questions afterwards. I've done some Karen Dunn, you know, speed mentoring, and people will reach out to me. And a lot of times I'm real busy, and I say I'm real busy, but contact me in another month. You know, I'll have a lull. And those that have stayed stayed on me have gotten, you know, Zoom calls and, you know, screen shares and, and all kinds of stuff. So, you know, um, I and also with the Cinema Audio Society, I chair the Student Recognition Awards. So I meet a lot of wonderful people that I've stayed friends with that have, you know, come through that. And I'm also on the board of IPMA, Entertainment, Inter Entertainment Industry Professionals Mentoring Associate Alliance. Yeah, IPMA. Catchy. So yeah. It's a mouthful. <laughs> yes, it's definitely catchy. Um, and uh, I guess I feel like at this point, it's my duty to do that. And I enjoy it because I enjoy the life and the passion of so many people. And I don't want them to make stupid mistakes. What's a stupid mistake? <laughs> <laughs> What's a stupid mistake? I'd say the biggest stupid mistake is people coming out of college and assuming that they know everything because they did so well in school and in their student projects. And then they walk into a facility and they're, they can't walk into the position that they want, of course. And so they have to start as a runner or they have to start as a gopher or in a different department or something like that. And they kind of begrudgingly take the gig and you can see it. And yet... I can tell you stories about people I've met who have been coming up through the years who had to take menial positions in this facility. And they did those menial positions so well that mixers took notice and started talking to the boss like, man, that guy orders food like there's no tomorrow. I mean, he comes in with menus at one o'clock. He says, let me know. He gets it. He puts it out there. I mean, or she, you know, it's like, whoa. Yeah, I know. Everybody's been talking about it. We're going to give them a student film to edit next week. Yes. Okay. That's how it happens. 
It doesn't have, or, you know, for somebody to show you something, you go, no, but we did it this way. Sorry, until you're in a facility under real life, you know, situations and deadlines, you know the language. You do not know mm -hmm. the real stuff because real world is very different and it breaks every rule you ever learned. It really does, you know? Yep. And so when somebody, <laughs> if somebody tries to be a know-it-all, it's like, take it in, take it in, sponge it in because you can assimilate all of it and come out with your way, you know? Take it all in. So that's the big stupid mistake that I, you know, it's like people say, don't be a dick, don't be a jerk, don't be stupid. You know, oh, that's a hard one. <laughs> I know, <too> much. <laughs> but it's 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 the biggest, the biggest faux pas, and it's sort of like be passionate and show your passion in every task that you're given, from small to large. It's the best advice I can give anybody, and also, you know, the big question is how do I get into it? Be relentless. Don't give up. I can say that looking back over my career and looking back over all the years that I've been doing it and seeing the industry and all my experiences, it's been quite a ride. <laughs> it really has. It's, it's been, yeah. My career is a lesson to anybody in rolling with it because I did not set out there to get here. I had no idea this was going to be my path and had no idea when I called my parents crying that day, going, what am I gonna do with my life now that my dreams are shattered by myself, <laughs> um, <laughs> that this was going to turn out to be even better than I could have expected. Yeah, so it's called roll with it and take the left turns where they come. Do you love to talk to people about their lives and our industry? Do you have creative ideas you would love to do with the podcast? Well, listen up, because we've got an opportunity for you. We're looking for some passionate, dynamic host volunteers that would be interested in taking the reins of the Sound Girls podcast this coming May. Our vision with the Sound Girls podcast is to pass it on to Sound Girls that have the desire to build the best Sound Girls podcast possible to inspire and empower young women and girls in our field. If this opportunity sounds intriguing to you, or if you're thinking, wow, I really want to hear my voice on the Sound Girls podcast then check out the news tab at soundgirls.org for more information, as well as to access the hosting application. The deadline to apply is February 1st. Thank you for listening to the Sound Girls podcast. Visit soundgirls.org for more information.